G'day everyone, welcome to another edition of Wrestling Hostile on SoundCloud, Spotify and Podbean. Remember to follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at WrestleOzStyle or just search Wrestling Hostile. I'm your host Chris Funder Hogg, you can follow me at I am Chris Funder. But now it's time to introduce the better half of the show, Fruity Alex Williams. You can find him on Twitter and Instagram at Fruity is Alex. Alex, how are you today? Uh, I'm very well, Chris. Um, how are we doing? Yeah, yeah, pretty good. I suppose we've got a lot to, to talk to, so we'll probably skip most of the pleasantries this time, because um, it's been a big weekend in international wrestling with a few pay-per-views. Yes, I believe so. That was a pun. <laughs> On the previous show, you talked about watching Slamversary, and I've actually gone back and rewatched that now. <laughs> Yeah, all right. I'm interested to hear your takes on it all. So I really enjoyed the women's uh, title match, the co-main event. So good. What was it? Gauntlet for the gold battle royal pinfall elimination singles match thingy. Like, that was just a complete cluster. I may not have done it justice enough when I explained it to you about how bad it was. I may not have even made it sound as bad as it actually was. The only thing I noticed was that Tyre and Rosemary were trying to eliminate Havoc and then their male friend Johnny someone end up coming in and throwing out Havoc, so that's how Havoc got eliminated. I know you were saying like that was a bit confusing, but watching that back I did pick up it was three people who did eliminate her even though he was credited with that it was mainly him though yeah and that's the issue i had was like this comedy entrant was like the determining factor in eliminating the monster in the match for impact where they have sort of even during their downtimes been known for their outstanding women's and x division you can sort of see it as a bit of a questionable choice yeah definitely from there the tag match with shamrock the dive to the outside that i mentioned on the last show um it did play into the ending i didn't see that on the clip on twitter so that does sort of make sense that he went for a dive completely missed couldn't stop himself they went into the ring did a double team finisher and pinned him the surprises when (laughs) the day before on the official impact youtube channel they're still, like, teasing Kurt Angle. <laughs> Buy this pay-per-view now. Maybe you'll see Kurt Angle. <laughs> it's in the intro for the show. They show, like, quick flashes of Sting and Kurt Angle. There you've already paid for it. The day before, if this is your deciding factor. Oh, they're still teasing Angle. Maybe he'll show up or via uh, video or something. Yeah, that's if you're partially demented and forget that watching a Kurt Angle match or a Sting match in 2020 might not be worth it anyway. Yeah, but even to come in as like a manager or an on-screen backstage sort of person would be interesting. To be fair, I would love to see Kurt Angle versus Ken Shamrock because they've never really been in the same company at the same time and they're the ankle lock guys. I just thought of that. They've... They wouldn't... Another blood sport match for next year. Yeah. Oh, yeah, make that happen. Well, all right. Let's just all fancy book blood sport. Impact can have their own, like, New Japan-style dad division as well. Ken Shamrock, they got Johnny Swinger in there. I love Johnny Swinger. I forgot to talk about him. Yeah, the surprises I would have rather had been, like, left a lot more vague or teased very little and 
delivered minimum rather than tease the world and deliver minimum. <laughs> Main event was what it was. It was confusing, contrived, changed at the last minute from a four-way to a five-way and then elimination. Correct me if I'm wrong. Like, they didn't mention it was elimination at all. Not previously. And from what I can remember watching until the first pinfall, not that I picked up. Yeah, all right. I had to double-check myself on there because, you know, what I'm like, I'm not the big note-taker of the two of us. So when I was ranting about Slammiversary... Because I'm not the note taker, there's some like slight inaccuracies every now and then. But yeah, it's good to hear I was correct. They didn't mention it was an elimination until after the first pinfall. Overall, I thought it was a pretty pretty good fun show. I'd say about three beers. So from there, I suppose we'll move on to what probably most people watched, which was the horror show at WWE Extreme Rules. Ooh boy. <laughs> because I'm assuming you watched live, did you catch the pre-show with our Aussie buddy Murphy in it? Uh, no, and I sort of missed, I missed the tag title match too. So I sort of just jumped on live and instead of going back, just sort of just went with it. So I missed the tag title at the start of the pay-per-view as well. Shinsuke and Cesaro, you knew tag chance but those guys have been stale for a while now New Day have had eight reigns there, Uzos are out of action, Miz and Morrison moved up to a world title match and then got squashed and it is what it is at the moment having WWE still split across two divisions there's not really that much depth at the moment for two tag divisions. Yeah you're right yeah definitely the match was fine. Shinsuke, in my opinion, being such a fan of his New Japan style and one of the main reasons I got into New Japan, it's just very saddening to see what's happened with him on the main roster. Uh, I'd have to put Cesaro into that sort of category as well. Uh, I sort of stumbled across him from his ROH Kings of Wrestling sort of era with Chris Hero and was immediately a fan of him back then and and Cesaro is one of those guys like a Shinsuke or even a Dolph Ziggler where it's like, it looks like they're about to break out, but then they sort of just give up on him. Speaking of the man, we might as well jump ahead to their neck. The Dolph Ziggler match with a stipulation that nobody's ever heard of before. Yeah, except, so I did my research for this in like 2016, whenever the new brand split started and Dolph was feuding with The Miz, they did a match with this exact stipulation except it was against Dolph. So technically, the stipulation had never been done before for Dolph. It was just there as a match. It was waiting for Drew to hit the Claymore and win. Yeah, that that's the problem. Like, technically everything they did in the match and it was... Like, the way they executed everything, everything was good. Like, these guys do have great chemistry, and they're both very talented performers. But with Dolph Ziggler, it's just hard to give a crap. Yeah, we talked about this before. He's the, the man of the ever-changing wardrobe and not much character evolution, it appears. Yeah, and it's just like, he never wins. Like, he gets his one title feud a year, right? And always comes out second best in it. So, like, 
why should we care? Then the MVP Apollo match got changed where Apollo no-showed and MVP declared himself the winner via forfeit. So he's now the new US champion. There's not much to talk about there, but I, I will quickly say like MVP and Lashley and now as it developed Shelton Benjamin, the whole MVP act during this pandemic era of Raw has been one of the very few highlights of the show for me. The second iteration after he got rid of the Aussies. I forgot all about that again. Yeah, so MVP has been a highlight for me on Raw. I never thought I would say that in 2020. Like, ask me a year ago or even like, seven or eight months ago, like, if I thought MVP would be the star of Raw. But he has been a highlight, and I really like the new United States title belt. Yeah, we were talking about this on one of the recent episodes as well, that it's very nice-looking. It's a throwback to the NWA sort of style belts, and it's much better looking than the new Intercontinental Championship. Yeah, this one has a bit of character. I'm a big fan of eagles on belts. Not ours? <laughs> no. If you put an eagle on a belt, it's historically proven that it's going to be one of the most revered titles of all time. Like, any belt that has ever had an eagle on it is, like, loved by the fan base. What would be the Australian equivalent? Would it be a wedgetail eagle, a kangaroo, or an emu? Kookaburra. <laughs> oh, I like that. So from there, I guess we can talk about Bailey Dose Straps. This, this was good. I've actually been a bit of a fan of Nikki Cross for a while. This was a good opportunity for her. I think, I don't know, something's just... Something is missing from her act for me. The rest of Sandy? Well, she'll have to find an owl to find her leader. This match was pretty good. Like I said, there's just something... I, I don't know what it is about Nikki Cross that's just missing for me. For me, she's still partly stuck in this sanity character with her ring music and her entrance jacket and her sort of throwing herself against the ropes and banging the jacket on the canvas and then she's with Alexa and she's like nice sweet innocent Nikki and it's sort of sort of still split there yeah I should elaborate it's like the presentation of the character itself it's just a little off for me like either she's the quirky like nice chick but she's a little bit like eccentric or whatever or she's the crazy chick. She can't be both. And then from there, we go on to Two Belt Banks. Or so we thought. <laughs> yeah, the good old dusty finish, hey? I really enjoyed this match. I thought they were going to go with this and, like, tease more out of this. And then on Raw, Stephanie's head pops up and goes, yeah, no, we're not doing that. That's going to be a no contest and... uh uh, we'll have a match later to determine a true champion. <laughs> like, who's the champion right now? Is the title vacant for a week or what? Oscar, I guess. Yeah, they did a horrible job of explaining it. Well, I suppose then you could argue the same point to MVP. Is he allowed to declare himself the winner by forfeit? But, like, that's that's kind of the gimmick with him, though, is that, like... He says he's the US champ, but the commentator's like, he's not the US champ. Apollo Crews is the champ. Yeah, I just find it weird that they've got two very similar storylines of heels cramming themselves champion on the same brand. Asuka got pinned. Bailey put on the ref shirt, 
counted the free, gave the belt to Sasha, went up the ramp, came on down on Raw and Stephanie said, no. Nope. So Asuka hit the green mist on the referee, but to me, I didn't even notice that there was mist. So did they just pretend they did the green mist? I'm not sure how she sprayed it because her back was to the camera and I've not seen another angle of it. That's what I thought too. Like, because of the angle, I think they did the right thing by not having her actually spit on a human being in a pandemic. Have like a squirt bottle or something behind the... I'm also just curious about how they did it, that's all. And then the two main matches, we have the Swamp Thing fight, which was, I believe, for the championship but then it wasn't. I don't know. Cinematic matches are starting to wear me down a bit. There was a couple of highlights from this. I enjoyed Sister Alexa Gale. Alexa Bliss being a hallucination in Braun's mind and all that sort of stuff. I actually enjoyed that. But yeah, a lot of this cinematic stuff's just overdone for me now. I I don't know. What about when he first arrives at the swamp and he's beating up two men that appear very similar to a uh, Eric Rowan and a Mr. Brody Lee in a navy suit? I didn't even put those two together, to be honest. Yeah, okay. That's fine, I guess. And then does Bray win because Braun drowned or what the hell happened there? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. And, like, after everything, like, they had gone through... Braun just, like, decided to think he had won the fight just by, like, maybe, like, uh, just from, like, barely pushing him gently into a body of water. Like, that's not going to get the job done, Braun. Doesn't beat out your top cinematic match so far of the year? No, see, with that one... There was, like, lots of references to each guy's past, and that that was in this Swamp Fight, but, like, the references were so deep, it sort of felt rewarding as a fan watching it, because, like, oh, yeah, I get that. Oh, I get that. This one was just like, oh, yeah, you're reminding me of stuff from an era that I don't look back that fondly on to begin with. I'd have to agree. And then in... The second longest match of the night, the eye for an eye match. Now, before I say anything about this, what did you think? I actually really... I. um, (laughs) (laughs) I actually enjoyed this match. Then the finish happens. And you know what? They had to do what they did with Ray, right? Like... They promised it, so they sort of have to follow up with it. My biggest issue was you could have made Seth look like an absolute psychopath, unrelentless monster, but no, you made him throw up instead. Yeah, he had some very hot two-minute noodles and spat them back out. Like, he could have just stood there and just, like, laughed or just, like, nodded and walked away. So... For me, the match felt way too long for just trying to get someone's eye out. And there was points where they were just wrestling and not going after, like, the face. And, yeah, the closing sequence went from serious ridiculousness to comedy (laughs) to just, what the hell was I watching? Now, I don't know if you noticed this live, 
but I went back and rewatched. Did you notice what Ray's eye was? There was like a little like fake eyeball in his hand, right? No. What was it? It was like a $5 fishing float from BCF or something. <laughs> so you know those red and white floats you put your line through to help see where your line is in the water and that? Yeah, he had one of those in his hands. Oh, wow. I thought it was actually like a fake eyeball that they've sort of like painted the back of it red to look like the back of the eyeball and stuff. Okay. Yeah, that's ridiculous. What I hate the most is the next day on Raw, Seth actually comes out, cuts a really good promo, but the commentators are just like, oh, Seth's such a horrible human being and he did this and it's so gross and is despicable and blah, blah, blah. But what if Ray won? It was the stipulation of the match. Like, he had to do it if he wanted to win the match. And Ray was trying to do it to him too. So, like, I don't think they should be, like, harping on that point too much because, yeah, it's kind of what he had to do. It was part of the stipulation. Yeah, and then after he froze up and Ray's taken backstage, all the NXT developmental wrestlers are banging on the perspex and it's like, what the hell am I watching? Yeah, unlike you, I actually enjoyed the... Well, I guess, in a way, bell-to-bell aspect of the match. The finish was was what it was. I actually liked at first how, like, Seth's slowly walking over and then he starts to sort of quickly run over to Ray and then he just sort of stops in his tracks because he sees what he sees. But then it's from that point forward that it just gets a bit... Yeah, it gets a bit much for me. Probably helps that you were watching live as well. Yeah, probably. So from there, do you want to have a quick chat about the New Japan Roadshow on Monday night? I didn't watch this, but I got falsely teased by a misleading gif on Twitter to the point where I thought someone had left their faction and joined another faction. A lot of undercard matches sort of setting up Sengoku Lord which is happening this weekend. I'll just go over the um, top two matches here. The team of Hiroshi Tanahashi, Kota Ibushi, Yuji Nagata, and Master Wado defeating Suzuki Gun, Yoshinobu Katamaru, Mizoru Suzuki, Zack Sabre Jr., and Taichi. Master Wado pinned Katamaru. And then in the main event, the trios match, it was Bushi, Tatsuya Naito, and Hiromu Versus Taiji Ishimori, Dick Togo, and Evil. Good old Dick to go. At the start of this match, Hiromu's in the ring. He takes off his ring jacket and he's wearing a Bullet Club shirt underneath and makes the little gun gesture towards Naito, then turns around, faces Evil, and LIJ attacks Bullet Club before the bell. Yeah, so New Japan World on Twitter shared a, tw- a tweet of. Uh, Hiromu, like, taking off the jacket and revealing the Bullet Club shirt and then doing the gun at Naito. And that was the end of the clip. And their caption said something about... Yeah, like, has Hiromu joined Bullet Club? (laughs) Yeah, and I was like, what the hell? And then I was like, all right, I'm going to have to go through their Twitter and find out what went on here. 
And it took me forever to actually find the clip where it shows that, no, Hiromu didn't. Yeah, they swerved me on Twitter with that one. Probably would have been quicker for you to just log into New Japan World itself. Yeah, I should have. So this went about 15 minutes. Evil end up pinning Bushi. As someone who hasn't seen Dick Togo before, I thought he did really well in the match as well. How's he looking? Is he looking, like, jacked? Yeah, a little bit, I suppose. I'm not sure of his weight. I think he might be on the sort of junior side of things. Yeah, he's always been, like, a solid but, like, smaller guy. Do you know what promotion he was in previously? Uh, was it Michinoku Pro or Noah? Noah sounds right. I'm not 100% sure on that. Attitude Era wrestling fans might actually know Dick, Dick Togo. Oh, God. <laughs> as uh, part of Kai and Tai in 98, and he was one of the guys that helped uh, Val Venus get his PP choppy choppied. Yeah, the less said about that, the better. Well, and that's why they call him Dick to go. No. Oh, jeez. So do you want me to give a quick rundown of the lineup for Sengoku Lord this Saturday? Roughly what time will that be, Australian? 7pm East Coast time. All right, 7pm Saturday night. Sounds like a good night in. First match, uh, Yurimura, the young line, versus Taiji Ishimori. Second match, Taguchi... Kojima, Honma, and Makabe versus Gabriel Kidd, Tasuji, Toru Yanu, and Tomohiro Ishii. Third match will be Sho, Yoshihashi, Hiroki Goto versus Bushi, Sanada, Tatsuya Naito. Fourth match will be Master Wado, Hiroshi Tenzan, Yuji Nagata, Kota Ibushi, and Hiroshi Tanahashi versus Doki. Kanemaru, Suzuki, Zack Sabre Jr. and Taichi. Fifth will be a special singles match. Okada versus Yujiro. Sixth for the Never Openweight Championship. Shingo Takage versus El Desperado. And the seventh match with a 60-minute time limit for both the IWGP Heavyweight and Intercontinental Championships. It's evil in his first defense against Hiromu. Let's talk about Yujiro Takashi. So I get that Okada is in chaos and Ishii's in chaos and you kind of need a heel to feud with Okada at the moment and you've got a limited selection of guys to, at the moment to use. But look at that undercard. There's still a lot better options than Yujiro. <laughs> in saying that, would you want to use, I don't know, a Suzuki now going into August with your summer struggle tours across Tokyo? Like, honestly, like, Yujiro is just, uh, it just doesn't do it for me, man. I've never, I've never understood it. Never been a big fan yeah, we will talk about him when we get down to my choices for reviews. Do you remember the tag team he used to have with um, Naito? Oh, what was it called? Um... Team No Limit. Uh, the reason why I remember that is because it might ha they might be on the card for that TNA pay-per-view I want us to review. Ooh. So yeah, they've got dates announced for their summer struggle tour going all the way up until Sunday, August the 9th currently. 
I believe the G1 still scheduled for around October. It'll be interesting to see what they do with the G1 this year, like with a presumably limited roster. If they sprinkle some juniors in there, like they did the New Japan Cup or whatever. Yeah, and I was sort of thinking, would you just do the G1, but instead split it off into two single blocks? So you've got block A as heavyweights and block B as junior heavyweights. So you're doing your best of the super juniors at the same time. That'd actually be a good idea. Well, at the moment, yeah, still got dates announced up until the 16th of August. And then I suppose this Friday, they've got Tom Lawler on New Japan World as part of their New Japan of America lines break shows. Yeah, I think that's already out. Tom Lawler was wearing trunks, but they were in this, but like they were painted or whatever, designed to look like denim shorts. Like he was wearing his normal, like, you know, UFC style, like tights that go up to the upper part of the thigh. And yeah, they're sort of designed to look like jorts. And he looks like. He looks like he's wearing, like, Jessica Simpson from Dukes of Hazzard's, like, little booty shorts. It's so... Uh, Tom is a weird guy, and I love it. I suppose that's all from this week that we've watched so far. Anything else there, or should we jump into the main part of the show? Uh, yeah, let's jump into some um, ECW. Episode number... 13 of Wrestling Old Style, this is Pick Your Poison number one, the rise and fall of ECW, the 2004 documentary. So before starting this, Alex, had you watched any of the early, I guess the original ECW through tape or DVD trading? It was around like 2001, it might have been just after ECW had shut down, but I had gone to a reject shop with my mum and I found like a couple of ECW DVDs there and I convinced mum to buy it for me because I wasn't allowed to buy it because they were like rated R. And I was like, mum, it's just wrestling, it's fine. And she got it for me, so that was cool. And one of those DVDs had a match on there and was living dangerously 2000 and one of the matches on there was um it was the first match on the card and it was dusty Rhodes in the year 2000 versus steve carino in a texas bull rope match and they just bled buckets all over the arena and i thought it was the coolest match i've ever seen and i don't know one day i might pick it for a review for us to talk about yeah and that's where i I'd already seen Mike Awesome in WCW at that point. Not much to talk about there, but that's the first time I saw Mike Awesome in ECW in his natural habitat, just being an absolute beast. And yeah, just powerbombing people from the ring outside to the table and doing giant dives, and I was sold. But as I was talking about that, I just remembered that like, a couple of years before that, for Christmas one year, Mum got me a new wrestling video game, and it was the ECW Hardcore Revolution for the Nintendo 64, and I didn't know any of the people on there. Like, maybe a couple I knew, but I knew that you could do barbed wire matches and make women in, like, barely any clothes, like, bleed all over the place, and it was, like, really 
weird and gross for me as a child. So, myself, I don't remember any of the original ECW around that time. I might have come over like to your place and maybe watched one of those DVDs or played that game, but I can't remember too much of that. Yeah, other than that, I sort of started watching ECW once we got the network in Australia late 2014. ECW is sort of... I'm admittedly a big fan of Metallica, and if it wasn't for ECW, I wouldn't have really have gotten as into Metallica or certain other bands as well because of their ways of illegally using copyrighted music. Which is one of the biggest shames of that ECW video library is so much of it is dubbed over during the entrances. Yeah, watching Sandman do an entrance without Metallica or watching New Jack do his match without the sounds of Natural Born Killers, it's just... Yeah, it's not the same. The actual documentary itself. Now, did you see this around the time when it came out in 2004, 2005, probably by the time it got released in Australia? It was either 05 or 06. I can't remember the year now. I started doing some part-time work at like a Sanity DVD shop, CD shop back in the day. Yeah, and when I was doing part-time work there, the... I noticed this DVD was for sale and I was like, oh, can you give me 50% off and I'll buy this one? And they're like, yeah, yeah, you work here, it's fine. I've watched that DVD like hundreds of times, like to the point of like, I hadn't seen it pretty much since the whole network era has started. I hadn't watched it since. And as I was watching this for this podcast, I was like, oh, yeah, I, I remember exactly what all these talking heads are going to say and, like, all the promos they show and all that sort of stuff. So, for me, I, I would have got this around the same time that I got the book, The Rise and Fall of ECW, because I'm pretty sure I brought the book, the, was it, the book and a T-shirt off WWE shop in a deal, and then I was going through Sanity like a couple of months later and saw the DVD there, and I got the DVD. Yeah, nice. So yeah, the the documentary starts off with various clips from ECW's past, including a few quick thoughts from Tommy Dreamer, Jericho, Stevie Richards, Spike Dudley, Al Snow, Jerry the King Lawler, Eric Bischoff, Mick Foley, Rhino, and Bueller, all pretty much saying how fun it was to work in... ECW, except for Jerry. I, I still can't tell if his work and if his a work or not about his hatred of ECW. He says the Philly fans were the most passionate, but also the most violent. And Bischoff says Paul Heyman attracted an audience because he did what WCW could not do on TV, which is like a hundred percent true. Like. He provided an alternative to the mainstream product. Yeah, as we'll as we'll get to as we go through the documentary here. So, as some people may or may not know, ECW started out as Eastern Championship Wrestling, and when Paul enters in uh, 1992-93, Todd Gordon was the owner and Eddie Gilbert was the booker. The two had a falling out, and Todd turned to Paul. Paul felt wrestling needed to change like the music world had changed from 80s hairstyle bands to 90s grunge with Nirvana. On September 18th, 1993, 
the first ECW show Paul books happened. So from there, it sort of showcases a bunch of um, different ECW people. Uh, do you have any quick thoughts on how ECW sort of looked as Eastern Championship Wrestling? Yeah, I've gone on to the network and sort of watched some of the early, like, 92, 93, pre-Paul Heyman era of ECW that's on the network. It's so weird to see, like, yeah, under the ECW banner, like, guys like Jimmy Snooker wrestling uh, Don Morocco and stuff like that. It's just weird thinking, like, where it evolves to. Is it very much like a smaller, I guess, WCW being that it's partnered with the NWA at that stage? Yeah, it was just pretty much like, here's the guys from the 80s that didn't get picked up by WCW and, you know, couldn't get a job back with Vince. Here they are. This is Eastern Championship Wrestling. Yeah, just pretty much a whole bunch of New York guys that used to have a decent name and they were wrestling in front of a small crowd in Philly. So from there, we move on to a bunch of introductions about previous ECW wrestlers. The first was Public Enemy, Rocco Rock and Johnny Grunge. Paul said he knew the two as opponents and decided to pair the two together. And Taz went on to state two white guys rapping who could also wrestle. Yeah, um, Public Enemy were a uh, exciting team to watch in the mid to late 90s. I sort of mainly knew them from their short stint in WWF and mainly knew them from their stint in WCW where they won tag titles and they were pretty much the first team I ever saw to throw people through tables and all that sort of stuff. And then it introduces us to the Tasmania. Taz said he knew Paul and was called to wrestle Sabu. He ended up working with ECW for seven years. It also introduced Sabu at that point, who had a reputation from FMW in Japan. Druma commented that Sabu was the innovator of chairs in wrestling. Introducing Terry Funk, Paul Heyman said, the only wrestler from the previous era who was legit tough, Terry was willing to work with the next generation. Any quick thoughts there, Alex? Taz, Sabu, Terry Funk. Um, Taz is still one of my favourites to go back and watch. Um, he was just a machine. Uh, his suplexes and stuff was so cool. And, yeah, everything felt real when he was in there. This is early Taz. This is Tasmaniac Taz. <laughs> yeah, okay, cool. I'm still just going to talk about Taz is fantastic sabu he's one of those guys that i knew everyone loved and everyone was into but i just didn't get it but that's just me terry funk i love terry funk uh big fan of terry's craziness and um when i was younger i had a vhs tape of wcw and i had a match on it from Ric Flair versus Terry Funk in 89, which was infamously the first time anyone had seen someone get pile-driven on top of a table in North American wrestling. Oh, wow. So from there, it goes on to talking about the night the line was crossed at Philadelphia on the 2nd of the 5th, 94, a three-way match between Terry Funk, Shane Douglas, and Sabu. Stoll calls it 
what some are labeling the greatest wrestling match to take place in this country for quite some time. They had a freeway dance that went to a one hour time limit draw and fans applauded the result. Then talks about how Shane Douglas and Paul Heyman were annoyed at WCW. Dreamer states Paul would say that Bischoff and WCW were the most vile company you could work for. Paul went on to say that I hate them and they hate me. Then introducing Tommy Dreamer. He'd worked for ECW for eight years in total. And Dreamer and Taz are still on national TV as of today, which is quite amazing when you think of that class. A lot of these ECW guys could pretty much walk on to a TV show today just from reputation alone. The Sandman's introduced next. Paul says that the Sandman embodied the ECW spirit. And then it shows the Singapore Kane match where Sandman Singapore Dreamer, which stemmed off a USA citizen being caned in Singapore. They show the clip here where Tommy's getting caned. He stops for a moment, grabs the microphone, says, Thank you, sir. May I have another? While the fans are shouting for him to lie down. Later on in the feud, Sandman was burnt in the eye with a cigarette and caned by Dreamer. Dreamer says backstage that he didn't mean to blind Sandman. Sandman stayed at home for a month blind and returned to ECW to do a retirement. And as Dreamer's back was turned in the ring, ran in, takes off his patches and beats the bejesus out of Dreamer with a Singapore cane. Like right in the back of the head. It was disgusting. Oh yeah, some of these shots watching with 2020 vision, are, you can see they're not the uh, the nicest <laughs> shots now, knowing what we know about head injuries. No. ECW states they attracted the older male crowd, while WWF and WCW were still being aimed at a children family audience. ECW also did blood and intergender angles, while WWF and WCW could not. Then introduced Cactus Jack, who came in from WCW as part of a lawsuit settlement. They had a dream match with Sabu, and then Cactus Jack in a backstage interview spits on the WCW tag team championship and froze it down because he lost to Sabu and said that losing his pride to Sabu meant more than losing the WCW tag team championship. I actually, to this day, still own the VHS from that show. I had it as a kid because, yeah, my dad had a friend who had VHS tapes of wrestling and he somehow was able to source stuff all the time and... Yeah, he gave me a copy of ECW and he's like, have a look at this and tell me what you think. And I was like eight years old at the time and watching a, uh, I think it was like 94 era ECW pay-per-view and I thought it was honest to God garbage because pretty much as a kid, all I'm looking for is bright lights and pretty colours and all that sort of stuff. And it was just like a horrible handheld camera shot of a poorly lit bingo hall. So, But as I grew up, I grew to appreciate it a bit better. But yeah, I still vividly remember seeing Cactus Jack spit on that title. Yeah, which he does state that Ric Flair and Eric Bischoff were angry at him from WCW because he was still under contract to them at the time. They then introduced Mikey Whipwreck, who started out as a ring crew member, 
He goes on to wrestle but didn't have any offensive maneuvers and won over the audience's approval. He would team with Cactus and ends up winning the tag team titles as he rolls up Public Enemy because no one kicks out of a schoolboy. Yeah, uh, it's actually the sort of gimmick that I think would still be awesome today. Yeah, well, look in Sydney. <laughs> well, he he would later go on to like have a fluke win and win the ECW title over... St- uh, over Sandman and Steve Austin, so and then like has a fluke win, like defending the title against Steve Austin. It's awesome. So from there, Paul wants to separate the Eastern Championship Wrestling from the NWA's ex- historic roots. So there's a NWA World's Heavyweight Championship match between Shane Douglas and Two Cool Scorpio. Douglas wins and gives in my opinion, a post-match address for the ages. Now, you've seen this um, address, haven't you? Yeah, from the Harley races to the Barry Windhams to the Ric Flairs. Like, the disgust in his voice when he says Ric Flair is so good. And they can all kiss my... Yeah, it's so good. It's a promo I've seen a million times, and I just love it. Yeah, it's it's just one of those pieces of ECW that if you've never watched a full show, you've probably seen this online via other means. But uh, watching it again in full, it just still holds up to today of this man who's angry with this organisation who didn't treat him right and just says, no, nope, I'm not going to be the torchbearer for your company that died seven years ago. I'm going to declare myself the world heavyweight champ of ECW. It's a promo that sort of, like, it was a sign of what ECW was to become. It was anti-establishment. It was rebellious. It was in your face. It was breaking the rules of tradition and starting its own. Paul says when Shane threw down the title, it ushered in a new era. They interview an NWA board member, Dennis Caluso, who says it was a disgrace. I'm disappointed, and Shane Douglas is still the champion. Yeah, I love the backstory about how like the NWA guys actually had no idea that was gonna happen, and they were like just shoot like pissed off about it. Yeah, so history shows that Shane Douglas wouldn't be the champion the next day, and he holds it for less than a day. Later on, on a Eastern Championship Wrestling broadcast, Todd Gordon comes on air and says, I've folded Eastern Championship Wrestling, and in its place will be Extreme Championship Wrestling. We recognize Shane Douglas as our world champion. So now we're in the era of Extreme Championship Wrestling, so they've severed their ties to the NWA. They're moving to a more hardcore audience. Paul states, being based in Philadelphia, they could draw fans from New York, New Jersey, Pittsburgh, and Baltimore for shows. ECW brought in cruiserweights like Eddie Guerrero, Dean Malenko, Two Cool Scorpio, and uh, Chris Benoit. He goes on to state the Paul Heyman production policy. Accentuate the positives and hide the negatives. Why have pyro if we can't afford it? Let the wrestling talk for itself. Which is a fair point. If you can't afford lighting or pyro, are you going to spend more money on that or are you going to spend money on trying to um, put on a better wrestling product? Australian promotions like MCW and APW do a really good job at 
that are hiding the negatives and accentuating the positives. Um, Riot City Wrestling as well, too. They're both really good at that no-frills sort of presentation, but, like, making the most of what they do have. They then talk about a legendary ECW rivalry, Dreamer versus Raven, where Tommy Dreamer always loses to Raven for three and a half years. Yeah, just an epic rivalry that, like, starts off from, like, Dreamer being a high school jock that used to bully Raven in school and and then Raven would grow up and he'd get the girl that was in love with Dreamer in high school. And it's just all sorts of, like, deep threads to this story that's, like, kind of corny on paper, but they just deliver it so well. Oh, I loved the, the Raven character in ECW. It was so well thought out going back and watching so much of that. Always a big fan of Raven. I'd, he'd be a guy I would always pick in the video games when he was in WCW and I always picked Raven to win the world title and beat Hollywood Hogan like that would ever happen. Yeah, Raven was always a favourite. They talk about the public firing of Sabu in the ring from Paul Heyman because Sabu had left for Japan without telling Paul. Dreamer states, Paul never lied to the fans. He lied to wrestlers, but he never lied to the fans. They then talk about how Taz broke his neck in a pile driver from Scorpio as Malenko grabbed his legs and drove him down to the mat. Dreamer says that he helped Taz walk to the hospital and he'd be out for over a year. Taz said, Paul paid me every week of our agreement with my handshake guarantee. Yeah, and they showed the actual footage of Taz getting pile-driven, and it, yeah, it's not nice. And, yeah, Taz talks about how him and Tommy Dreamer walk into the hospital, and they're like, no, no, you didn't. How'd you get in? It's like, I walked in, and they're like, well, you shouldn't have. You shouldn't have been able to because you got a broken neck. Like adrenaline, and we've seen this with, um, I'm sure you've seen this through other sports. I know there's a story in the um, the AFL a number of years ago, there was a player who played a grand final with a punctured lung. Mm. So it's surprising what a adrenaline can do for someone. Yeah, even just like look at like the SummerSlam 97 and watch what happens to Stone Cold, him landing on his neck and he's still like, he, he gets some help but he walks out of that ring. Or Vince, when he tears both his quads and... Yeah, but that was kind of funny. <laughs> Edge is saying backstage like that Vince walked all the way to his own car and drove himself to hospital. <laughs> Just a bad man. But that's, that's the guy that thinks sneezing is a sign of weakness. So... Um, so... They talk about how both Dean Malenko and Eddie Guerrero left for WCW. Eric Bischoff states that one man's raid is another man acquisition. Vince went on to say, we put Paul on the payroll to compensate for taking his talent. They then talk about the Lucha Libre in ECW. So Conan, Rey Mysterio Jr., Psychosis, Juventud Guerrero all joined ECW which is sort of the first major exposure of, I suppose, luchadors in the United States. And they show some pretty cool footage of, like, Rey Mysterio, like, in a car park, like, doing a Hurricane Rana onto Juventud Guerrero off some fan's car and all that sort of stuff. And um, Paul Heyman talks... Paul Heyman says something like, oh, yeah, that was a fan's actual car 
thank God my dad's a good lawyer. When when I saw that clip, I thought of the um clip that was going around a few years ago of Kota Ibushi at DDT on a car shooting fireworks onto himself. I'm like, <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fan would be like, yeah, okay, you can do that. <laughs> um, they then talk about Steve Austin in ECW. Uh, Paul states, I worked with... I worked in WCW with Steve. Then he got fired over the phone. And they show a parody of Steve Austin as Hulk Hogan with Mean Joey. (laughs) (laughs) Like, if there was ever a guy who just took the ball and ran with it, in terms of making chicken salad out of chicken stuff, there was Steve Austin in ECW. And, like, his cutting promos, like, as a heel and still getting heat but completely putting over ECW as a company is like, please, Eric Bischoff, please take me back. I can't hack it in the ECW, dude. And it's just, yeah, and they talk about his uh, little segment he did called Monday NyQuil, where he dresses up as Eric Bischoff and he has bongo drums next to him, bongo instead of mongo. He's talking about how they, we're going to have Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan and a bottle of Geritol on a bowl match and stuff like that. All the old codgers. Yeah, just so good. They talk about how Cactus Jack would leave and then Taz made his eventual return to the company after injury. Then they talked about the Sandman-Raven rivalry involving Sandman's ex-wife and eight-year-old son with Raven. In in this part, they do stuff with um, Sandman's son and they're, like, shooting it in whatever dark crevice Raven hangs out in. And um, every time Sandman's son, like, does the Raven pose, like, Raven would do this almost, like, comical, like, cackle. <laughs> so funny, and he'd just stare at the camera and be like, <laughs> Like at one point, Raven goes to the kid, You know, the divorce was your dad's fault, right? And then he goes, I know, and does the Raven's pose. Yeah, yeah, and that's when Raven does like the corny, like, like he's a witch in a cartoon cackle. It's so good. There's one point where Tyler, the son, says, I love you more than my own daddy to Raven on, like, a video screen, and the Sandman just starts bawling. And it, like, really helps Sandman get over as, like, a humanised him, too. And really effective storytelling. And then later on in the feud, Sandman's in the ring, and Tyler returns, gets in the ring, he's wearing a Sandman shirt, hugs his dad, steps away, and Raven sprints in and just cane-shots Sandman to the head from behind. (laughs) And then Sandman sort of looks up and his son's like doing the Raven pose for a split second. And it's just like, yeah, that's heartbreaking. That's awesome. From there, we go on to the Blue World Order. And Paul states like they tried to sue us over a parody again. I, I love the Blue World Order with the blue guy, Hollywood Nova and big Stevie Cool. <laughs> Stevie Richards is so good in this. Um yeah, if you only know Blue Meanie from his, like, uh, horrible WWF run where he was, like, blue dust at one point. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, like, yes, he is a f- big, fat, white guy with blue hair, but he, he did, like, moonsaults and stuff in ECW, and he was actually quite good. 
Yeah, and they talk about a few different parodies they'd done before this and one week coming out as Public Enemy after Public Enemy had left and then they did the Blue World Order and it just stuck for them. Fun gimmick. Without going too far ahead with our reviews, they um, show up at one night stand and when they showed up, I got literal goosebumps from the reaction they got from the crowd that night. So just proving that, like, all those years later, this, like, niche trio comedy act is still just so loved and well-remembered and over. Then they talk about Raven Dreamer storyline again, but with Beulah and how Beulah was pregnant with Tommy's kid, but then it turns out she wasn't pregnant because she was cheating on Tommy with Kimona. Dreamer would go on to state, we did the first lesbian angle in wrestling. We got thrown off every television station we had. I'll take them both. I'm hardcore. Yeah, you can see where where the standard was in the late 90s compared to today for that sort of thing. Um, I still think, like, Tommy Dreamer doing the, I'll take them both. I'm hardcore. And then, like, having a three-way kiss with the two of them is still, like, just... Badass, I loved it. They talk about the WWF King of the Ring where King Mabel led to chance of ECW and how Vince reached out to ECW to work together at In Your House Mind Games. This is where Jerry states, like, why are we giving up this TV time to the competition? Um, Then they go on to, I think, something you've probably seen a number of times in WWF that Kurt Angle didn't have a problem with. It's where Raven crucifies the Sandman. So he's tied him and it's like a cross with barbed wire and he's got a barbed wire crown of thorns and afterwards he has to go out and apologise to the crown for his use of religious imagery because the crowd had respected his personal time when he had time off. And Kurt Angle just quits on the spot, says, if you use any footage of me, I'm going to sue you. Yeah, and... um. Whilst, like, WWE did do very similar angles, nothing was as identical to the religious imagery as this particular angle. This was, like, this wasn't The Undertaker's symbol. This was a full-on cross. This wasn't Steve Austin, like, tied up to The Undertaker's symbol, swearing at The Undertaker. This was, like, an unconscious bleeding man with a full-on crown on his head. Yeah, you can sort of see the big difference now. (laughs) Yeah, this was very distasteful. Um, Yeah, I'm not a religious guy by any means, but that's just putting bad karma out there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I'd I'd have to agree. But ECW were known for sort of pushing the envelope, and they get on to... um, then they move on to talking about ECW getting onto pay-per-view, how in-demand uh, wouldn't put them on originally because they thought they were like UFC with shoot fights. The fans rallied to get ECW on a pay-per-view provider, and then Paul briefly talks about the mass transit incident. So for anyone unfamiliar, go watch Dark Side of the Ring with New Jack. Sort of explains everything on there, how there was a wrestler who'd lied about his age to get on a show and then... Uh, got beaten. They barely even talk about it on this. Like, they sort of reference that there was an incident and 
the phrase mass transit incident was mentioned once and that was it. My only thought would be because, say, this was filmed around 2003, would there have still been any legal um, implications going because Vince may have just brought the company? Yeah, possibly, possibly. Yeah, so they briefly mentioned that as of um, following mass transit, they lost their pay-per-view contract, but in the months following, they were able to get back on and um, the first pay-per-view scheduled was barely legal. ECW would invade Raw at the Manhattan Centre in 1997, and they used this time on Raw to plug their upcoming pay-per-view. Sabu's on top of the Raw R and goes to dive on Team Taz but ends up falling. <laughs> hey, you, you, you fell off the R. Hey, hey. It was just a little inside joke we had. Hey, you're the guy that fell off the R. I love Taz talking about that. That's something I remember vividly, like him thinking it was the funniest thing in the world that he... And Sabu fell off the R. And then King saying in his interview, saying how he thought everyone was so small. I've recently have been going back and watching Raws from like the early part of 97, like before it full on becomes Attitude Era, just out of curiosity. And also because Sid is like the world champ at that time. So I love that. Um, and I did watch that episode of Raw with ECW invading, and it was actually so good. It's so much better than the stuff around it. Yeah, yeah, it's like the highlight of those episodes of Raw. Like, even if, like, I didn't know who these guys coming out were, like, it kicks off with, like, some ring crew guys in the middle of the ring, and they get the... Um, total elimination from the eliminators where one person does a sweeping kick low whilst the other does a spinning heel kick high. Do you mean to say, total elimination? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's just, like, a really cool presentation because, like, like everything, like, at that point was still sort of cartoony looking in the WWF. And then out comes, like, these guys that just look like real people, just real tough people and coming out and just adding a dose of reality to an otherwise cartoonish program. So from there, it moves on to Barely Legal in 1997. Paul talks about how Gang on Pay-Per-View was the holy grail for ECW, um, and RVD mentions that he was offended that he was left off the card. The co-main event was a freeway dance where, where Terry Funk defeated Sandman and Stevie Richards to go on to the main event versus Raven for the World Heavyweight Championship of ECW, and he ended up defeating Raven. Um, Paul ends up saying... If we had gone 10 more seconds, we would have lost transmission. Uh, if anyone has ever seen Beyond the Mat, you might re remember this pay-per-view as the one where Paul Heyman does his infamous inspirational This Is The Dance speech in Beyond the Mat on that famous stairwell that he's talking to the entire roster on. Um Definitely something else that we should probably consider reviewing one day, actually. I've listened to that speech so many times since watching Beyond the Mat, and that's because it's um, sampled by the Hilltop Hoods on one of their restrung albums, I believe. I didn't even know that. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to find that. Yeah, it's like got a nice bit of classical music under it at the start. 
Yeah, right. Um, anyway, um, yeah, so the first pay-per-view goes off without a hitch. Their transformer blows 10 seconds after going off the air and the building lost power. Yeah, just insane. It's like the overall story of ECW is just half of it's dumb luck for whatever reason and land of misfit toys at this stage. From there, Raven leaves for WCW and as... A final match, he's facing Tommy Dreamer, and Tommy Dreamer finally beats Raven. But in the post-match, Jerry Lawler invades ECW, and Dreamer would go on to say, Lawler caned me in the balls so hard I passed out, and I woke up when Cornette hit me with a tennis racket. Lawler went on to label it extremely crappy wrestling from a bingo hall. Yeah, like, I can't tell if, like, Jerry Lawler is still working that he hates ECW or if he genuinely despises it. Because he would have been on commentary at this time, 04, 03? Yeah. Maybe, maybe he just wanted to say that to keep in the good books with the higher-up. So, following Barry Legal, Paul buys out Todd Gorman, who remains as an on-air figurehead. There was talk of a locker room mole. Some felt Todd Gordon was the WCW mole, which leads to Paul firing Todd Gordon, but Bill Alfonso saves his job by having a match with Beulah McGillicuddy. This, like, 130-pound scrawny, like, ex-referee against a untrained female, and they're just having, like, a an absolute bloodbath in the ring. I've watched that match before out of curiosity, and it is a really good match. I think Paul says it at one stage, what's one of the hardest-hitting matches in ECW? And he says, oh, that'd be right up there with the top five of them. Some of the guys talk about their different backstage roles they had in ECW, so Bubba says he would book the arenas for shows as well as the everyday running of ECW outside the ring. Taz designed merchandise and logos. Tommy was booking as well as behind-the-scenes stuff, and Tommy, Devon, and Nunzio drove the merch van and posted out merch. D.V. Richards and Gabe Sapolsky ran phone lines and took ticket orders. D.V. Richards' office name was Lloyd Van Buren, and Taz also ran the ECW School of Pro Wrestling House of Hardcore as an old-school dojo and also running the door slash merch were the wives and girlfriends of the wrestlers. So it sort of seems like this um, big family sort of organisation where everyone's helping out, doing various jobs to make the um, overall ship work. Yeah, definitely. And and that's why like guys like Taz and Tommy Dreamer and, well, Devon and Bubba to this day sort of have had roles backstage in wrestling promotions just from their past experiences that they learnt fairly young in their careers from ECW. Now, this is something that I'd known from watching this, but before watching this, I was unaware of. Al Snow in ECW and the formation of Head. So he has a nervous breakdown, and then he gets Head from a parade float. <laughs> Sorry, I'm immature and just laughed at the thought of him getting head from a parade float. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the whole Al Snow thing, like um, Paul Heyman talking about how he wanted the arena to become a rave 
when people when Al Snow came out and he'd have people at the doors handing out all these styrofoam heads and they'd turn the strobe lights on and everyone would throw their heads in the ring and stuff like that. And Al Snow would do his entrance. It was just like a really cool presentation for him. Yeah, yeah, I'd have to agree, but spending that much money on twenty, thirty thousand um styrofoam heads to ship around to various arenas, is it worth it? Well, well, yeah, that could have been a few bounced checks saved there, but whatever. So they then talk about how ECW had internet conventions called CyberSlam, with Q&As with the wrestlers, uh, where they would do internet feeds from live events. If not for ECW on WWF, the Attitude Era may not have started. And Spike makes a comparison. If not for the Sandman smoking and drinking on ECW... You wouldn't have seen Steve Austin drinking and flipping people off on WWF. If not for Cactus Jack's scaffold match on ECW, you wouldn't have seen the Mankind Hell in a Cell fall on WWF. So it's sort of saying, yeah, we did this stuff first and got people used to it, and now you can see it on this show as well. Yeah, definitely. They then talk about Taz's TV title run, where he versed Bam Bam Bigelow. They both fall through the ring where Bam Bam crawls out first, pulls Taz out, and pins him to become the new TV champion. Yeah, that Taz-Bam Bam Bigelow feud, they had like two or three matches in ECW, and every single one is just amazing, like really worth checking out. So they then talk about Taz creating the FTW Championship. He debuts it in his hometown as Shane Douglas, the world champion, was out at the time. Uh, Taz went on to say there's only two people who've ever held it himself, then Sabu. And now we've got a new FTW champion in the world. Yes, Mr. Uh, Brian Cage. Yeah. They then talk about the Dudley boys, just the two main members, Devon and Bubba, how they're the innovator of flaming tables. Then they start to talk about ECW's financial woes. A few members on here start to talk about how they weren't paid, so Spike Dudley, Little Guido, uh, who's also known as Nunzio. Bam Bam Bigelow, Shane Douglas, Lance Storm, Tommy Dreamer. They mentioned how Paul Heyman was spreading himself too thin trying to do all the jobs. Going on national TV with TNN, later known as Spike. Vince warning Paul he'd have to change in order to grow nationally. Losing both the world and tag team champions to WWF within two weeks of each other. So Taz the world champ and the Dudley boys both left which leads into Anarchy Rules 1999 with um, Taz versus Tanaka versus Mike Awesome in Taz's farewell match. From there, the Dudley boys stated they asked for a $1 raise and were told Paul can't compete with WCW or WWF. Uh, the Dudley boys won the championship on their last night, setting up Dreamer with a returning Raven from WCW winning the tag championships. The demands of the network, where Paul can't say I hate you on air, led to the creation of Cyrus, the representative from the network, um, a.k.a. Don Callis. For ECW, the TNT deal was financially bad. They had little ad time and little money coming from the network itself. TNN began to publicly negotiate with WWF to replace ECW, 
And then Paul Heyman goes on ECW TV and dares TNN to throw him off the air. That promo of Paul Heyman, like, daring TNN to throw him off is just, like, legitimately one of the best promos I've ever seen. And it's just Paul Heyman, like, his face right in the camera, staring directly into your soul, just begging the network to throw him off the air. It's just a really good promo. We hate your freaking guts. <laughs> we hate that you don't advertise for us and there's a bunch of... Th- he says hate like 10, 12 times in this promo. Yeah, just to piss him off. It's so good. So from there, they talk about Rob Van Dam a bit more, saying how he's a fan favourite and TV champion at the time when he got injured. Like 23 months, nearly 24 months. He was like a few days shy. RVD goes on to state the plan was for him to face the world champion later. They then talk about how the world heavyweight champion Mike Awesome signed with WCW. Police arrived at WCW to retrieve the belt because Paul feared that Bischoff would throw it in the bin live on TV like he had with Medusa and the WWF Women's Championship. So there's a rare match in history. It's a WCW wrestler versus a WWF wrestler for the ECW championship in an ECW ring. So it's Mike Awesome versus Taz. And Mike Awesome, the WCW wrestler, taps to Taz, the WWF wrestler, after a Tommy Dreamer run-in. Taz would later wrestle on WWF SmackDown as ECW champion with the title versus Triple H, who was WWF champion at the time, where he lost after interference. I remember watching that Taz versus Triple H match, and I was, you know, 2000, I was probably like 10 or 11 or whatever, and, yeah, I was positive Taz was going to win the WWF title that day. I remember buying into it hard, and that match just being awesome to me as a kid. Yeah, and then from there, they go on to Tommy Dreamer winning the ECW Championship for the first time at the ECW Arena in 2000. Dreamer went on to state, I was pissed off. I wanted to go my entire ECW career without winning a title, and I only won because guys left. Eric talks about trying to please all the masters when running a national company, TV executives, pay-per-view providers, the audience, the sponsors, plus advocacy groups. It's sort of a double-edged sword, it seemed, ECW getting on national TV at this point. They're they're growing, but they've also got a lot of demands with the product that they're putting out. So from there, Paul says, The plan was to find a new network, but we can't negotiate because of our deal, so we're boxed in on TNN. They kicked ECW off after WWF moved over a little after a year once they started. Tommy said, People's checks start to bounce. And it had the appearance of a sinking ship. We were so close, it was heartbreaking. In January 2001, the last ECW show. Within a month of ECW closing, WCW was brought out. So around 90 wrestlers who were in a job were now without a job. Everything seemed fine, Rhino stated. Selling out arenas and selling out pay-per-views, but we still went out of business. Paul stated ECW died because we couldn't get another network in time. No network means no money. And then in March of 2001, Paul Heyman joined the WWF with a live mic on Raw talking very Paul E-like. 
worldwide, ECW has a cult-like following. Four years later, there's still ECW chance. <laughs> there's still those chants occasionally to this day. Yes, yes, indeed. And then a closing word from Paul is, you cannot achieve success if you fear failure. Yeah, this is probably one of the best documentaries, in my opinion, that WWE's ever put out. What are your thoughts there, Alex, before I move on to some of the other stats? Yeah, it is a fantastic documentary, and it's one of the few times um, you've got access to Paul Heyman speaking candidly about ECW on a documentary. Paul Heyman is notorious for being one of those guys that doesn't like to look backwards and reminisce on that sort of stuff too often. So, yeah, it's cool to have his uh, voice on it all. So post the documentary, there's um, just a couple of, suppose, stats and figures and tidbits here. Um, So ECW was TNN's highest-rated show at the time. Despite a three-year deal being signed in August of 1999, they were off the network in October of 2000. ECW Hardcore TV, their syndicated show, last aired on December 30th, 2000. Their last pay-per-view was Guilty as Charged, January 7th, 2001. Living Dangerously was scheduled for March 11, 2001, but was cancelled in February of 2001. And ECW closed on 4th, 2001, after WCW had closed on March 26, 2001. Some of the amounts owed to ECW wrestlers were Sabu claimed he was owed $2, and then uh, Rhino claimed he was owed 50000 Tommy Dreamer 100000 Shane Douglas 145000 and Rob Van Dam 150000 um, WWF later, later WWE would hire a number of ECW wrestlers for the invasion and pair them with the WCW wrestlers they hired. WWE purchased ECW's assets in court, including the tape library, in 2003. Any quick thoughts there, Alex? The $2 thing from Sabu. I've never heard that before. Um, but yeah, um... No. Sorry, I just got lost. Um, yeah, it, it's it's crazy. Um, it's crazy some of the amounts that these guys were owed. Like, yeah, 150 grand to RVD, 145 to Shane Douglas. They're two of your top guys, too. You'd think you'd be looking after them a bit better. Dreamer, who was loyal to um, Paul, was claimed to owe... Um... 100,000 and Rhino, the last world champ, was claimed to have owed 50,000. Yeah, just insane. So, from there, do you mind if I chat a little bit about ECW Exposed? Yeah, feel free. This was a special on the WWE Network November 10th, 2014, hosted by Joey Styles and Paul Heyman at the WWE headquarters. Talk about being extreme before the rest of America used it for a branding, like how you'd have extreme value meals and that sort of thing. I just pictured, like, a Happy Meal with, like, some barbed wire in it when you said that. <laughs> um, well, you had, what was it, um, the Extreme Football League. Yeah, that's true. Paul makes the comparison of big 
music and movie makers now editing from home, but when ECW did it in the 90s, they were made fun of for being cheap. They also talk about the time they set a fan on fire. A total mistake on ECW's part. You would hope so, anyway. Yes, indeed. Talk about Brian Pillman working for ECW under a WCW contract who was released as part of a storyline and then end up working himself into an actual release. That whole thing is just amazing, what Pillman did. Because he went and said to Bischoff, if you give me my actual release, I can go public for it and get more media coverage and stuff. So that got into some actual questions. Joey asks, what WWE superstars from 2014 would have succeeded in ECW? So Paul says Brock Lesnar, Cesaro, Daniel Bryan, CM Punk, Dolph Ziggler, and John Cena. Paul goes on to say Vince and Shane were looking to buy ECW in late 2000 slash early 2001. He said he went personally bankrupt at the end of ECW. Joey asks, what other foreign talent would you have liked to have seen in ECW? And Paul answers, I wanted Masawa versus Kiboshi for Heatwave 1998. Man, that would have been cool. Joey asked, if we continued past 2001, where would we have gone? Uh, so Paul answered, a more progressive style, like a hybrid of MMA and pro wrestling. The Ring of Honda and the indie crop of 2002-03, so people like Sam Punk, Samoa Joe, Daniel Bryan, Dean Ambrose, Seth Rollins, and Lowkey. He actually went on to say that Lowkey was interested in signing for ECW in 2001, but didn't want to sign him when they were on the way down. And then Joey asks, How does it feel having such a legacy 13 years after ECW folded? He answers, I'm very proud of it. It was seven and a half years of my life that I'd never trade. So yeah, it's sort of a, a weird insight there and what Paul was um looking at. Man, that heatwave match, if only. <laughs> yeah, Masao versus Kabashi in ECW on American soil. That would have been, yeah, that's crazy. And for those fans who had their, their ear to the ground, so to speak, who were in the the Japanese tape trading circles at the time, it would have been a, a real treat for them. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so anything really much to add on the original ECW, I guess, Alex? Not really. Uh, it's just a really cool thing to look back on. Um, yeah, like some of my favourites of all time, like Taz and Mike Awesome, who I'm obsessed with. Um like, even Sid had a run in ECW. Um, he had a pretty cool run, actually. He just comes out in the middle of boring matches and powerbomb people and leave. Really cool. Um, I don't know. I, I, I reckon I might, might give this uh, Rise and Fall a rating. Might as well. I, I'll give it. I'll give it five beers. Yeah, I'd have to agree. Five beers. So from there, anything else really to chat about or just let them know what we're watching next time? Yeah, let's talk about what's coming up next on the schedule. So next we've got the second half of our ECW Pick Your Poison where we're looking at the best of ECW One Night Stand 2005 and 2006. 
Yeah, I just finished watching both of those shows the last couple of nights, and man, I, I remember how good 2005's one was, but 2006, like, probably not for the right reasons, like, in sticking to ECW tradition-wise, but 2006's One Night Stand is a hell of a show as well. Yeah, I'd have to agree. I'm dreading watching the Sandman entrance for 05 on the network. I'd need to find a um another mean of that entrance because I know... Yeah, I tried to find it on YouTube and I couldn't find it. Yeah, so so if one of us finds it, we're going to have to send it to the other one before the show. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that... Oh, man, that entrance... Oh. Honestly, you're making enough money. Just pay to put that one on the network. Yeah, yeah, seriously. Um, and then following that, we'll be back for the second edition of your game show. Yeah, uh, that'll be fun too. Um, there's been recent roster changes, so I'm in the process of uh, making a few changes to my card at the last minute. Oh, are you doing a ghetto and rebooking an entire two years on the fly? <laughs> yeah, that's that's what we're doing over here. <laughs> yeah, I guess we'll um, speak to you soon next time. Other than that, peace out. Much love, humans. <laughs>